Welcome to episode one of Crime Historian, the podcast. Thank you for tuning in. This podcast idea originated a long time ago, actually. I began a crime blog in 2014, and after some encouragement and prodding from a close friend, I decided to take the true crime stories I was writing about and begin recording them. Our first story is about a man named Daniel Lee Siebert, who, through the duration of most of his time in my story, went by the name Daniel Spence. It is possible that you have heard of Daniel Siebert. He is a serial killer. However, I ran across his story first on accident. I'm one of those true crime nerds that every once in a while, I'll get on a kick and I'll just start Googling things. This particular time, I Googled serial killers in Talladega, Alabama. Now, I definitely thought it was unlikely that it would bring up anything. Obviously, I was like, um, if there was a serial killer who ever lived in the town where I live, surely I would have heard about it by now. Not necessarily true. Now, I lived in Talladega mm, for a couple of years, well, for about a year and a half, and then um, I moved to the next town over, but I still resided in Talladega County in total for about six, seven years. Um, And the whole time I lived there, I never heard of this man. Um, What I think is fascinating about him is that he has 12, maybe 13 um, murders on record. However, he's not one of those guys that you hear talked about a whole lot. I know his story has been covered um, by at least one TV outlet or one program. I don't remember which one. If you do, uh, you can send it in. And if you've seen it, I'd be interested to know how the information I give matches up with it. Um, but Daniel um, was was a troubled, troubled man. And um, when you hear about serial killers, you usually think of you know John Wayne Gacy or the BTK killer, Ted Bundy or the Green River killer, Son of Sam, and on and on and on and on. But this guy's name isn't a name that comes up a whole lot. And there are a few things that I think make this case interesting. So um, I will tell you about Daniel. In late December of 1985, we have our first character that enters. His name is Don Hendren. And Don is an artist and a playwright, and he is leaving L.A. Why is he leaving L.A.? Well, he has a job lined up in Talladega. Um, And it is Talladega, not Talladega, no matter what Ricky Bobby tells you. It's Talladega. Don was first going to North Carolina to visit his family, and then his plan was to head to Talladega because he had just gotten a job there to operate a theater program at the Alabama Institute for the Deaf and Blind. In Talladega, we just call it the Institute. Um, a lot of people work there. It is, um, for all intents and purposes, Talladega is a really small town, and the Institute is probably one of um, the bigger employers there. Um, Don was um, on his trip from L.A. to North Carolina, and then, like I said, he was going to go to Talladega. He stopped in Tucson, Arizona, and he picked up a hitchhiker who identified himself as Daniel Spence. Daniel, um, also known as Daniel Siebert, our serial killer. Daniel was also an artist. And they discussed on their trip um, their views on art, and Daniel showed Don some of his work. Don was pretty impressed with what Daniel showed him. He thought he had some talent, so he asked him, Hey, man, do you want to come to Talladega and work with a theater program? And Daniel was all for it. His plan was to show up in Talladega and work as the set designer. He said, though, 
that before he went to Alabama, he wanted to visit his mom in Illinois. So once they reached Mississippi, Don and Daniel, they parted ways, and the plan was to meet in Talladega. When Don left him, Daniel was hitchhiking north to Illinois, to his home in Mattoon, Illinois. Don continued driving east, and he came in, he showed up in Talladega on January 9th, 1986. Daniel arrived 11 days later on January 20th, 1986. Now, um, just to put this into perspective, um, the first reason I've probably never heard of this is because I wasn't even born when it occurred. The second reason I've probably never heard of this murder is um, because, hmm, I don't really know how to say it. Talladega has a penchant for sweeping things under the rug, like a lot of small towns. Um, now, they love gossip just like and I don't, I don't mean this as a blanket statement, like, ooh, everyone there gossips. But, you know, um, it can be a stereotypical southern town in the sense that people know people's business. But some things are swept under the rug. There have been a couple of tragic events that have happened in Talladega. And I am not sure if I will cover any more of them. I would like to. But um, there are some stories that even make me cringe that I only happen to hear about. Um, because of my family that lives there. But it's not something you would necessarily find from a Google search. So, um, January 20th, 1986, Daniel shows up. Don and Daniel, they first shared an apartment at the Institute. Then they moved into another apartment about a week and a half later. They moved into an apartment in the Porter Building. What I would like to say about the Porter Building, first of all, is that um, the Porter family is my mother-in-law's side of the family. And they own a realty company, and um, they also have a motel in town that you can stay for, um, like, extended stay if you're visiting. Um, the Porter Building at the time was located right near the square in Talladega, and um, it just burned down about a year or two ago. Unfortunately, there was a fire of some sort, and... Um, so, I don't know, I just found that interesting that my mother-in-law's family owned the building where the serial killer lived. Um, furthermore, at the institute where Daniel and Don worked, uh, my mother-in-law happened to work there from 1979 to 1982. She was um, a dorm parent. And the institute um, is, a, is a really great resource for um, hearing impaired and vision impaired students across Alabama, and they do really good things there. So... Um, you know, it's really tragic that this story, you know, slightly comes out of, you know, a place that is noble by all means. So um, they move out into the Porter building. And shortly after, Daniel, he began, uh, some reports say that he began dating Sherry. Her name is Sherry Weathers. She was 24 years old and she was also hearing impaired. Now, uh, they say, and when I say they, I mean my, my sources that I researched. Some people say she was a student there, but I also read that she was a teacher, that she um, was helping other people who maybe had um, similar handicaps. And when I say handicap, I don't mean, um, I know that's not politically correct, but um, that's how it was phrased in the, in the resource. So who had similar... Um, I don't know, medical impairments. So um, Daniel began dating her, but I think it was kind of like on the DL 
because um, a relationship like that was prohibited by the Institute's rules. So I'm pretty sure fraternization was not looked upon well. As a result of that relationship, Don Hendren, um, he wanted to separate himself from the situation. So he moved out of the apartment that he and Daniel shared in the Porter building on February 16th, 1986. So um, he stayed in there just a little under a month living with um, Daniel. Um, Don and Daniel saw each other for the last time on February 19th, which was three days later. Don had arranged to pick Daniel up around 8 the next morning on the 20th to go to a faculty meeting at school. When Don went by the building the next morning, Daniel wasn't even there. So um, if this were a movie, I would be zooming out right about now and fading into another scene. Um, Also in February, Sherry, um, the woman who was seeing Daniel kind of secretly, was living in the Sunshine Apartments in Talladega. Um, I have never been to the Sunshine Apartments, but I'm pretty sure I've driven past them. Um, I Google mapped them and it looks like they are in, um, there's this area in Talladega, like just over the railroad tracks where there are like six different, it's like where six different roads meet. And it's like the worst, most confusing, like stop sign situation that you've ever encountered. They are just past, uh, the apartments are just past that little area in like kind of like a rural little country road. So, um, Sherry lived in these apartments and, and it looks like at least now, I'm not sure what it looks like in 86, but at least now there's like three or four different buildings sitting there. She lived in apartment 30 with her two sons, five-year-old Chad and four-year-old Joey. Around 8 p.m. on February 19th, so this is the night before Don showed up. This is this is the night before the morning where Don showed up to pick Daniel up for the meeting. Daniel was seen with Sherry and a neighbor of hers, Linda Jarman. They were buying beer at a convenience store in Talladega. I'm not sure which convenience store. I know there's a Chevron over there now, but I have no idea what was around in 86. Um, the three of them left the convenience store together, and Fettus Porter which, as far as I know, is no relation to the family, but hey, you never know, it's a small town. Um, Fettis, which was a neighbor of Sherry's, came home around 9.30 that night, and he found a note from Sherry. And that note was asking him to come over and play cards with her and Linda and Daniel. So Fettis went over to her apartment around 10.30, and he said that he had found Sherry and Linda just hanging out, talking. And um, they told him that, hey, Daniel left in Linda's car. She went to go get some beer. I'm sorry. He had went to go get some beer and, um, they were all going to play cards when Daniel came back. So Porter stayed over there for about an hour, an hour and a half. He said he left around 1130 or midnight. Um, but Daniel never showed up. So I guess he just got bored and went home sometime during that night. Catherine Shelbourne, who lived right next door to Sherry's apartment in apartment 31, heard through her wall adjoining Sherry's apartment, a man. And this man was quoted as saying, Come to me, you can join your mother. Later, she heard the same voice say, Come on, and you will be with your mother and your brother. That's kind of eerie. Another resident of the Sunrise Apartments, Billy, he saw Sherry Weathers fighting with Daniel in her apartment on that night, February 19th. When asked what time he observed them fighting, Billy a deaf man 
who was also um, mentally handicapped. I use that word again. My text says mildly retarded, and I don't really prefer that term, especially since I'm a teacher. I find that extremely insensitive. So we're going to go with um, maybe mentally disabled. Could only say that it was sometime after 8 o'clock when he came home. So um, Billy knew that it was after 8 when they were fighting. By Sunday, February 23rd, Billy hadn't seen Sherry. She hadn't seen her kids around the apartment. And he remembered the fight he had seen um, between Sherry and Daniel on Wednesday. So um, four days have passed, well, three and a half. And Billy was getting worried. So he tried to check on Sherry, but nobody would come to the door of her apartment. So by this time, he was really concerned. And he entered Sherry's apartment through an unsecured window. I don't know if it was open or unlocked or what, but um, he reportedly saw a part of her body protruding out from underneath the sheet. He got scared, and then he left. Obviously, since he had been in the building, um, when the police finally did show up to investigate the murder, they um, had to clear Billy of any involvement because when he came in, you know, he'd already left DNA and I'm not sure DNA was, uh, I don't even think it was even near as big of a thing as it was now. But, um, you know, like I'm sure that it's possible that someone could have seen him. So he had to account for that. So I'm glad that he was not wrongfully accused. Cause of course, you know, we hear so many stories where, um, that is the case, unfortunately. So the next morning, And I'm not sure why he waited until Monday morning, but he did. He told one of the social workers at the Institute that he was worried about Sherry. And he asked her to come over and check on Sherry and her kids. So after making a bunch of phone calls, the social worker, Wanda, she found out that nobody had seen Sherry or heard um, her kids in uh, many, many days. She also learned that there was a bad stank There was a bad odor coming from that apartment. So her and some other people, I'm not really sure who the other people are, you know, probably police officers, went to the Sunrise Apartments and got a pass key for the apartment. Um, When they entered, they found the bodies of Sherry, her son Chad, and her son Joey. Sherry and her boys were found together on Sherry's bed covered with a blanket. Um, The manager then notified police that there was another woman who was missing that they hadn't seen lately, so the police went to her apartment. That woman was Linda Jarman, and they found her naked and strangled, lying dead. Her TV was on in her car, the cream-colored Buick that Daniel had taken for beer on Wednesday was gone. The autopsies revealed that um, Sherry died um, from strangulation and Chad and Joey died from ligature strangulation. So I'm supposing the difference is maybe ligature strangulation is caused by um, some kind of rope or string or cloth or something like that, whereas strangulation may just be um, manual. I'm not totally sure. Correct me if you know better than I do. Um, I'm assuming Linda also died of strangulation, but it wasn't really documented anywhere for sure. But since she had been strangled, we're assuming that's the cause of death. Um, What's interesting is that 
when you Google this man, Daniel Lee Siebert, you find that he is not only defined as a serial killer, but he's also defined as a serial rapist. Um, in my research, I cannot find anything uncovering um, that he raped um, Sherry, Linda, or either of her children, which, thank God, I hope that's the case. But um, I'm having trouble finding anything that connects Daniel and rape to these murders. So if you have any information out there that um, contradicts what I'm saying, please send it to me. Um, oh, and you can find us on Facebook under Crime Historian. You can go to crimehistorian.com or you can follow me on Instagram at Crime Historian. So um, obviously an extensive investigation in Talladega was launched. During the investigation, they lifted shoe prints um, from apartment 30. Obviously, Daniel was a suspect immediately, so they also lifted shoe prints from his apartment in the Porter building, and the shoe print from his apartment and some of those from Sherry's apartment were consistent. Um, They matched in the design and the size and everything, and I know that that in and of itself doesn't prove that he murdered them, Um, obviously they've been dating, but it was definitely a step in the right direction for them. Also, uh, this part kind of makes me cringe. A child's pajama bottom was found in Daniel's apartment building or in his apartment. I don't know. I don't know what that means. It's possible that at some point he could have babysat her kids. I hope that nothing awful happened to those poor children. I mean worse than what already happened to them, obviously. Okay, so um, it doesn't end there. Not only did he murder Sherry Weathers, Linda Jarman, and Sherry's two kids, um, Chad and Joey, but um, he continued. In March, a 1973 cream-colored Buick was found abandoned near Elizabethtown, Kentucky. Um, I also found this kind of interesting because Elizabethtown is extremely close to my hometown, and when I was a teenager, I used to go, we called it E-Town. We used to go, I used to go to E-Town and play at the open mics there. So, um, kind of a, kind of eerie for me, two connections. Anyhow, um, this was the Buick, like I said, that belonged to Linda. They found a black purse in the car that had a receipt and the receipt, uh, the name on the receipt was Sherry Weather's name. They also found a key And that key was the same key that unlocked um, Daniel's apartment back in Talladega. They also came across a campsite near the Buick that was abandoned, and it was a makeshift campsite. Um, And they found several business cards with the name Daniel Spence with his address in Talladega, um, several photographs of Sherry, um, mail addressed to Don Hendren, a birth certificate with the name Danny Ray Spence, and other items containing the name Daniel Spence. Um, they also found two sheets of white paper and on that paper, um, were the names Sherry Weathers, Chad Weathers, and Joseph Weathers. And there was an art pad with Sherry's name on it. And I also read somewhere that, uh, several pairs of women's underwear were found at this campsite. Um, I know that various clothing items were found, so I'm not totally sure if that part is true about women's underwear, I don't know if these were something he collected, if they were Sherry's, or if he's a sick, sick man. Uh, well, obviously he's a sick, sick man, but you know, like in a sexually perverted way. 
Um, also, some of the items of clothing they found at that campsite had fibers with the same as the red carpet in his uh, apartment building. And then they also found two fingerprints and a palm print on the Buick, which were identified as Daniel Siebert's. So this is early March. Daniel was finally apprehended, and he was on the run for months. He was finally apprehended on September 5th, 1986. So, like six and a half months later. Um, At the time of his arrest, he had a social security card with one of the children's names on it that he had murdered, Joey, Joey Weathers, and he had an envelope um, that also apparently belonged to Joseph. So he was probably, um, I mean, obviously we know that this man is a murderer, but he is also not above identity theft. So if it gets the job done, I guess he's willing to do what it takes. Um, after the police gave, um, Daniel his Miranda rights, he waived them and he made a statement. I find this fascinating. Um, I'm not sure if the statement was made admissible in court or not, but the fact that he made a statement without his Miranda rights, I don't know. I feel like that is some kind of like law and order. Like you can only dream that you would get lucky enough to get a confession. He went, Daniel went to Sherry's apartment, this is according to him, on February 19th, 86, and he let himself in with a key that he said he had been given. Sherry and Linda Jarman were there, and eventually Linda left. As he and Sherry started walking towards the bedroom, he said that he strangled her with a piece of cloth that he had on his person. Okay, so I may have been wrong before about the difference and strangulation um then he woke up and this is not that that's not awful because it's bad but this part's sick because apparently the kids slept through it he could have just left but he didn't he woke up each of the boys individually and strangled them then he left town in linda jarman's car and he abandoned that car in kentucky after it had a couple flat tires and then after he spent a couple days at the campsite that he set up, he headed north um, near the Jersey area. Then he went east, and he was just trying to get as far away from Alabama as he could. However, if he was trying to get far away from Alabama, I don't know why he shows up in Tennessee. Well, I do know why he shows up. Um, he had a job there, but still, that seems ignorant. And I, I thought that most serial killers... And maybe this is a common misconception, but I thought that they had a little more than average intelligence, and this just seems like straight-up stupid to be so close um, to the state where you are being hunted. So um, when he was captured, he was convicted first of murdering Linda Jarman. Um, The defense filed for a change of venue after that, because obviously in Talladega, everybody had heard about this murder. You know um, they couldn't find an unbiased jury. So they took this trial, and they had it in Lee County, and then they convicted Siebert of um, the murder of Sherry and her two sons. Also, so right now we are up to four on the murder count. Um, Detectives also during this investigation learned that Daniel had been dating another woman named Linda, and she was a 32-year-old cocktail waitress. Now, I don't know what a cocktail waitress is doing in Talladega in 1986, 
because, I mean, as it stands now, I don't think there's more than one place to get a cocktail in Talladega, unless things have changed drastically since I moved. Um, there is one bar in town, so I'm not totally positive what that's about. But um, here you have Linda Odom, a 32-year-old cocktail waitress who was reported missing on February 24th. So... Daniel committed these four murders on the 19th. Linda Odom was reported missing on the 24th. Um, Her naked, decomposed body was found just outside of Talladega on March 30th. So it took a while for them to find her body. I'm not totally sure when she went missing. Um, We know that she wasn't reported missing until February 24th. And we do know from other cases that sometimes it takes families a few days to know something's up. I mean, because we get busy with our lives. And this isn't like 2016 today, where we're constantly connected with each other. Um, You could play phone tag for a week before you would talk to someone in 1986. So um, I'm not sure how long she was missing. So I'm not totally sure that she was murdered um, after Sherry and uh, Linda German and Sherry's children, or if it it was before or after, I have no idea. But, um, so now we have five. More evidence also linked him to the murder of a prostitute in Calhoun County. Calhoun County is right next to Talladega County. Um, and this, um, prostitute was also found around the time that he disappeared from Talladega. Um, uh, in my notes, this woman does not have a name, and I'm sorry for that. I don't have the victim's name. If you have it, you can feel free to send it to me. Um, over the next six months, and, and we know that he was apprehended in September, but during that time period, investigators were able to piece together um, his whereabouts. So sightings were reported from Ohio, New Jersey, in SoCal, and all the way up to Montreal. But they didn't get their first solid lead until early September, which, as we know, um, he, was, he was captured on the 5th. So this was on September 3rd when a friend of Siebert's from Vegas reported a telephone call from Daniel. So I guess he contacted the police to say, hey, this guy's contacted me. So when the next call came, police were able to track it to a payphone in Nashville. Um, employees at a local restaurant identified his mug shots and the next morning when he came into work to to fix the restaurant sign he was captured he was apprehended in custody he confessed willingly to um, five murders in various others spanning the continent when he was asked how many murders he had committed his response was maybe a dozen maybe more i try to put those things out of my mind so he says he tries to put those things out of his mind, but obviously he was keeping track of them if he had their names, at least three of their names written on a blank sheet of paper in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. Um, my notes say, one of my sources say that his main purposes for um, murder were sex and robbery and that he murdered his victims um, after... He, what happened was, um, I believe, and I'm not totally positive, but I think what happened was he assaulted a prostitute in San Francisco and that prostitute survived and filed charges against him. 
And I'm not totally sure what happened as a result of that. But after that, he began killing his victims because, I mean, he didn't want to get in trouble again, I guess. Um, he was also charged with the 1985 murders. Um, there were two murders that occurred in L.A. that um, the law enforcement just lumped in with another active serial killer at that time. That active serial killer um, was nicknamed the Southside Slayer. And um, these two murders didn't exactly fit the M.O. of that serial killer, but um, they kind of lumped him in there together and figured it was their it was their best shot at a suspect. But it turns out it was Siebert. He was charged with the 1985 murders of 28-year-old Gidget Castro and 23-year-old um, Nasia, I think is how you say her name, Nasia McElrath in Los Angeles. Um, it was also additionally charged in the 86 strangulation of a 57-year-old woman named Beatrice in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Uh, and authorities announced that they were still, at that time, checking on other unsolved murders all across the country to see if they could be connected to Siebert. Um, in March of 1987, like I said, he was first convicted of Linda Jarman's murder in Talladega, and he received the death sentence. Um, so, I guess... At this point, and the reason I'm telling the story to you in this order is because this is how I read it. At first, I read about um, his trip to Talladega, then I read about the murders, and then I got the backstory. And it kind of puts it together in a puzzle. It kind of pieces Daniel's life together. Um, obviously, I think some of our fascination comes from why do they do the things they do? Why do you kill? What motivates you? And ultimately, what makes me different from someone who's capable of this? So, um, I think it's a natural human, um, response to try to make sense of the nonsensical. So, um, there are also some, there's also some other information about him that I think might help paint a picture. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I just came across that woman's name, um, who the the black prostitute that they found in Calhoun County. She was 19 years old. Her name was Cheryl Evans. Um, I'm not sure that he was ever charged in that murder. I don't think he was. But, um, so just to kind of paint a picture of who Daniel is, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what I know about his past. And this is, again, from research on the Internet. So assuming the Internet, <laughs> anything on it is true, let's hope so. Um, Daniel was born into a house um, that was abusive. Um, in fact, the source describes Daniel's father as sadistic. And his father's name was Erwin. And it says that as a child, Erwin sexually and physically abused his son in every imaginable way. Um, I do know that this coincides with the legal documents I scrolled through. Um, Daniel admitted to one of his court um, one of his mandated uh, psychologists that he had been abused as a child. Um, he had been beaten, raped, forced to perform oral sex. His father forced him to put on girls' underwear, and he was forced to engage in intercourse with his father. Um, the source also says his dad would gag him, tie him up, and urinate on him. Um, Daniel was also physically abused. It says that his father hit him with a bullwhip, and that he hit him so hard, the scars um, remained with him until he was an adult. Um, 
according to the source again, his mother was afraid to leave. His mom was afraid of what um, his father would do. So um, one day when Daniel was 11, she allegedly took Daniel and his sister and left. But um, Siebert reportedly later told his own son, I know now it was too late. So I do believe that that was, at least in the context of this article, um, I'm assuming that he was in a conversation with his son just recounting his criminal history or maybe his past and just saying, <laughs> it was too late by age 11. Like, there was no chance for me. Um, his mom um, met another man and when he was about 12 years old, and then he ran away from home. And then, according to his son, Damien, Daniel was then, quote, lost to the streets and drugs and prostitution, end quote. It says that later on in 72, so this is when he's about 18 years old, that he decides to try and straighten his life out. He joined the Marines, but he joined under a different name, Daniel Marlowe. I'm not really sure what is up with him and his identities. Um, obviously, some of it's probably financial, but I don't know. There's some stuff that's probably like a psychological. He's trying to put on a new name with his new persona. Um, and uh, so he joined the Marines, but he was given a dishonorable discharge. There's your son. No, um, I'm not saying that everyone who's dishonorably discharged is a serial killer. But um, if you are sexually and physically abused by your parents, by either one of your parents, if you get a dishonorable discharge, I feel like that kind of fits into this, into like a, a different kind of serial killer trifecta. Because usually we talk about the three things, um, if they coincide, we should be worried. We talk about, are you like a pyromaniac? Do you wet the bed and do you abuse animals? I feel like we may want to add dishonorable discharge and uh, to that. And, I, and I'm not saying, obviously, you can't control if you were sexually abused um, or physically abused by, your, by anyone. Um, however, I think that could make you, it certainly could make you a risk factor for some things. Um, sometime between 1973 and 1975, Daniel had, um, he fathered a son and a daughter. And his son right now is currently a prisoner in California. I do believe he was arrested in 2005. His son's name is Damien, D-A-M-I-A-N, and I cannot currently um, find the information on his arrest. I'm not really sure um, what he was charged with um, or why he has been in prison for 11 years, but if you know, I would love to hear from you. Um, also, something that is extremely disturbing to me, um, Daniel, well, you know that he received the death sentence. I mentioned that he died in prison after, um, many appeals. Um, his time was coming up. He was going to be executed, but pancreatic cancer claimed him first in 2008. Um, in prison, he drew, he drew a lot. He's an artist, right? Um, when I was researching him, I found a couple of really pretty pictures that he had drawn like a floral life in plants and stuff. And I was like, oh, these aren't that bad. And then I scrolled through and I got sick to my stomach. So how about you don't Google his art? Cause unless you're just kind of, unless you're like the kind of person that like, if, if there's like something really awful happening, like you can't look away. 
but it's extremely explicit. It is not safe for work, so I wouldn't. It's just sickening. Like, it made me nauseous to look at it. Um, but what's even weirder is that he sold his art um, on, like, murder memorabilia websites um, until he died. And additionally, um, you can still buy it online. So if you're, like, one of those crazy, like, uh, people that likes to buy uh, relics from serial killers, maybe you're into that kind of thing. I, I'm not, I'm not one of those. I like the stories. I'm not really into the, into that. Um, I have done some research though, um, on Damien, his son. And from what I could pull up, it looks like Damien is, um, he, he had a little bit of, um, a fan base of his own online. And I found an old uh, message board thread back when people still wrote on message boards. And there is a woman on it claiming to be Damien's, um, fiance and someone on this thread had posted the news of Daniel's death and she had responded saying, yes, we know that, um, Daniel is now at peace. We're glad that we are glad. And he, he would have been glad that the illness, um, took him before the executioner did. And, um, you know, I'm glad, thank you all for the support and for seeing past his crimes and seeing him for the man he was. Um, I'm not totally sure I can get behind that because, you know, while I am accused of being one of those um, crazy liberals by my friends, um, and while I don't think the death penalty is the best case in all cases, it's really, really hard um, to have grace for a child murderer, I think. And um, I don't know. Uh, I, I know that everyone is someone's brother or sister or son or daughter or even father or mother. And I get that. And it's easier for someone like me with only information and no familial connection to make judgments. Um, but I just, I could, I would never be able to stomach the thought of someone like that being set free. So, I mean, life in prison or the death penalty, I guess, um, you know, either one, those would be the only alternatives in my book for someone like him. Furthermore, um, a couple, I want to say a year or two, maybe before Daniel died of cancer, he was investigated for some child pornography charges, not for the actual, um, possession, but I believe someone he was corresponding with from prison, uh, was involved with child pornography obsession, um, obsession. Yeah, I guess that's what it is, unfortunately, but, um, possession is what I'm trying to say. And he was investigated as a part of a, I think like a, a small ring. And I don't think they found anything connecting him to it, but again, not totally sure about that. So if you have any information, um, any corrections or any addendums, um, for this story of Daniel Lee Siebert or any of his victims, please feel free to email me crimehistorian at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook, like I said, at Crime Historian, on Instagram at Crime Historian, or at crimehistorian.com. Thank you so much for listening to episode one of Crime Historian, the podcast. I appreciate it. In the future, I hope to cover other um, interesting murders um, that have happened either in places that I've lived 
or in other places across the country or even across the world things that I find interesting if there is a certain story you would like to hear me cover or to write about because it may turn out that I am a better writer than I am a speaker you can again contact me um, and thank you again so much for listening and I hope you tune into episode two